At the Tokyo Games, Canada put up its best performance outside the Soviet-boycotted 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. We hit new heights in terms of medals, while athletes set new national benchmarks, even after a year delay and interruptions in training due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Post-media national sports writer Scott Stinson joins me to discuss Canada's successes, some missteps, and how the Tokyo Olympics were as unpredictable as could have been imagined. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Scott, it was an interesting two weeks at the Tokyo Olympics. A lot of interesting storylines, a lot of fascinating surprises for Olympics watchers, especially here in Canada. Let's kick it off on a high note. What do you suppose the biggest highlights for Canada at the Olympics in in Tokyo were? The far and away sort of moment that will be remembered for a long time is the women's soccer gold medal. And partly just because I think Canada and Canadian fans had some real history with that team. When Canada hosted the World Cup in 2015, it was a hugely attended event, sent records uh, for a Women's World Cup. And I think a lot of people really got into the Canadian women's national team at that time. And then prior to that, there was, of course, London 2012 and, and the controversial loss to the United States in the semifinals. And one of the best soccer games you're ever going to see. I mean, that was just a, a fantastic game and lots of people got into it. Mm-hmm. So there was all that sort of background. And then they finally beat the U.S. in the semifinal game. And then they go on to win the gold medal in penalties and back and forth and emotional roller coaster of that game. And I just think that was a kind of thing I, I know from, you know, when you're 13 time zones removed you can feel like you're sort of writing into the void and you're not really sure what people are thinking about it back home, but the soccer and and especially those last couple games was something that there was clearly a, a huge amount of interest in. And so I think that will be the thing that is kind of the legacy of these games in terms of the one moment everybody remembers. That's not to take anything away from Andre de Grasse and his three medals or Damian Warner and, and winning the decathlon for the first time for a Canadian. But if I had to pick one moment that was kind of like the big moment, I think, for Canadians, it was that gold medal match against Sweden. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, Andre de Grasse, he won his sixth medal in his sixth Olympic event, Mm -hmm. picking up, was it a gold, a silver, and a bronze, or was it a gold and two bronzes? It was a gold and two bronzes. Bronze in the 100, and then gold in the 200, and then bronze in the relay. Mm -hmm. The 200 was definitely the race that he sort of focused on. He thought he had the best chance of winning. It's what he calls his best race. He, of course, had the silver to Usain Bolt in Rio and coming second to Bolt is, you know, nothing to be embarrassed about. So it's not fair to say he was the favorite, but he definitely was one of those guys who who seemed like a gold medal contender for that race. So he kind of did what he, he was expected to do in that race. And then adding the other two bronze medals was almost a little unexpected because the relay team hadn't really worked together very much because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of, I think, up against it in terms of how other teams had done. But he managed to have this amazing anchor leg to pull out the bronze medal there. And then in the 100 meter, like that's just as much as he's a double medalist in it now, it's not his specialty. He's not great getting out of the blocks and 
you're not great getting out of the blocks and you only have 100 meters, it makes for a challenging race. But he pulled off the, a medal there too. So it was an incredible performance from him, partly just because it's a lot of running and a lot of races. You know, if people aren't aware, you're sort of doing heats and then you have semifinals, and then you have a final. So I think by the end of it, he had done something like eight or nine races in four or five days, which is a lot for the kind of race where you're basically going obviously full tilt because it's a sprint. So Mm -hmm. pretty amazing performance for him to come in after a couple of years of injuries and of course the pandemic and not really being necessarily in his best condition over that period of time between Rio and Tokyo, and then still basically doing better in Tokyo than he had done in his big coming out party in Rio. So amazing job by him. And as much as I, said the women's soccer team is the signature moment from these games. DeGrasse the is a pretty solid 1B on that list. I know I talked with your colleague Wes Gilbertson about Penny Oleksiak and her stellar turnout in the pool, but it wasn't just her. There were other members of the Canada's Olympic team who did well in the pool. Did they do as expected this Olympics with their medal hall? I think so. The funny thing about that team was I think you could make an argument that Penny Oleksiak maybe didn't do quite what was the optimistic view of her performance just because she didn't medal in the 100 meter freestyle, which was she was the defending Olympic champion in that event. Mm-hmm. But Maggie McNeil winning a gold, Kylie Mass winning two, and then one more relay medal ended up being, I think, about where if you had said they'll, they'll probably get five or six medals from that women's swim team in the pool, and then that would have seemed like a reasonable expectation. So they pretty much did what was expected of them, I would say. You know, they didn't blow anybody away in terms of expectations as they did in Rio, but they certainly didn't come in significantly under what might have been expected of them too. So I'd I'd say they more or less did what you would expect from that swim team. Now, looking at the rest of Canada's Olympic team and our performance there, I know like the last day of the games, we had kind of a surprise mm-hmm. win with Kelsey Mitchell, who... Yep. This, the story with her is that she hadn't been bike riding, cycling just five years ago even, or the last time there was an Olympics, she wasn't a cyclist and she mm-hmm. kind of got into the sport late and shows up in Tokyo and gets a, a gold medal. Were there any other kind of pleasant surprises in Tokyo for Canada's Olympic team? Yeah, I would say Mo Charal, the weightlifter who won gold, not like necessarily a big surprise surprise in that... She was considered a contender, but it's not a sport that Canadians typically do well in. And I think that you could make an argument that, again, with the pandemic and she had this charming story of her father creating a workout space for her in the garage and then insulating it so she could use it over the winter. You know, like those kind of conditions and putting up with that and then rolling into an Olympic Games and winning a gold medal, I think, is exactly what you'd think of when you're trying to draw pleasant surprises. So I think one of the big takeaways of this was there were a lot of situations where Canadians weren't necessarily expected to do very well just because our situation in Canada, as you know, Dave, was because there was lockdowns and, and closures of facilities and stuff like that, there were a lot of athletes that had to really figure out temporary training programs and things like that. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case in a lot of other countries. So she's an example, I think, of somebody who probably was not necessarily thought she would do great and then ends up taking a gold. So she would be top of my list for that. And I would add Damian Warner in there too. As much as he was considered a, a real contender and somebody who people expected to see on the podium, 
he had this crazy story as well of, you know, training in an old arena and not really being able to run any distances because it was indoors during the winter. And despite all of that, he ends up not just winning, but, but setting an Olympic record and breaking the 9,000 point barrier. And so I put those two with those gold medals as in my pleasant surprise category. With any Olympic Games or any world championships, it all kind of comes down to the performance on the day. And so you may have athletes who are favored to win medals who, due to a baton drop or a slip on the beam or or what have you, that they don't end up on the podium as you may expect. I wouldn't necessarily call them disappointments, but are there areas where Canadians, in your opinion, maybe fell short of what was expected or what people had hoped they would do? The ones that stand out, Erica Weeb, who won the gold medal in Rio, she lost her first match in Tokyo, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Wrestling is one of these sports where, you know, it's fine margins. You never know if it's not your day or if the judging doesn't go your way or if somebody happens to get lucky. It can all turn quickly. So in the sense of, you know, that's wrestling and these things can happen, Maybe it's not a total shock, but when you go from gold medal to not actually winning a match, it's a pretty significant change. The other one that was a surprise was Sarah Paven and Melissa Humana Paradis, the uh, beach volleyball players who were the defending world champions, you know, booked their spot in Tokyo um, like more than two years ago, had been rolling through the tournament, hadn't dropped a set, and then got to the quarterfinals and lost two straight sets and we're out. Mm -hmm. Beach volleyball is another sport where it can be over quickly. It's only, you know, best two of three sets. And, and so if you drop the first one, you're up against it. And that sport in particular was the conditions were brutal. I mean, it was really hot in Tokyo for all the events, but the hot sun beating down on the sand was uh, very unpleasant. <laughs> and so I don't know if that was part of it, if they were just, you know, they had a little taken out of them by the time they got into the quarters and that might've contributed, but it was, I would say, fairly disappointing to go from, a, you know, essentially defending world champions to not even getting a chance to play for the bronze medal. So they would be on high on my list of people that might've been expected to do a bit more than they did. One of the things that had been talked a lot about in this Olympics, and if I recall correctly, in Rio as well, is how strong a performance was put on by Canada's women. That, you know, when it comes to winning medals, our women are kicking butt, and the men are doing as well. Is that a testament to the strength of the programming that we have for women in sport in Canada? Is it a commentary on you know, the quality of our men's Olympic athletes? Is it a case the competition in the men's field is tighter? Like, not to take anything away from our female competitors, but what's going on with the men? I think there's a couple explanations. So one argument that you see is that the depth of field isn't quite as deep in women's sports because not as many countries fund and pay attention to women's sports as much as Canada does. Mm -hmm. I find that argument might have made sense 20 years ago. I'm just not as convinced by it now because there's a lot of countries that have women involved. It's not like it's just Canada and the U.S. and Great Britain and Australia that send big teams of women athletes. There's a lot of countries that have a lot of women competing. So I'm not as convinced by that one, but... I do think that 
part of the explanation is that the reality is there's very little in terms of professional sports opportunities for women. There is no professional hockey league of any significance. You know, the CWHL folded. There's another league that pays next to no money. There is no professional soccer league in Canada for women. So I think what happens is you get a lot of athletically inclined women. If they want to compete, the best thing you can do is figure out an Olympic sport that you are good at and want to train and pour yourself into and do all that stuff. Men, on the other hand, have lots of opportunities for professional sports. And so I think there is kind of like an organic weeding out almost of some who would otherwise be Canada's top athletes. You know, they can go into basketball or play hockey or play soccer or play baseball. And I think one of the things that happens is the people who would otherwise potentially be amazing male Olympic athletes are doing some other professional sport as their vocation. So Mm -hmm. I think that is probably a bigger explanation. And and the reality is, you know, sort of we touched before, also it's just a matter of doing it on the day, right? And for a couple Olympics in a row, it's been the women who happen to have come through on the big stage on the day that they needed to come through. So we can kind of come up with, as I just did, a big picture explanation for it. But Mm -hmm. some of it just comes down to doing it on the right day. Earlier you mentioned in the volleyball, beach volleyball court, you're talking about really oppressive heat and humidity. Um, May not have been the best circumstances under which to be competing. You have really hot weather in Tokyo. You have an Olympics where athletes haven't been able to train as much or in the way that they are normally accustomed to due to COVID-19 restrictions. And then just even the psychological impact of a global pandemic is, you know, we've talked about that for the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. Did that lead to a more unpredictable games than we potentially have seen in previous years? I think so. I think you can point to a number of examples of surprises. The one that really sticks out for me is the American male sprint team not winning any individual medals for the first time since ever. (laughs) They always are amazing at the sprints. There's always loads of them in the 100 and the 200, and of course the relays. Mm -hmm. And you had a situation where not only did the Americans not make the podium in any of those, but the 100 meter champion was an Italian who like nobody had really ever heard of. (laughs) And then they end up winning the four by 100 relays as well. So that alone was pretty unprecedented. The hundred meter is just not something where somebody comes out of the blue and wins it. And obviously there are potentially explanations for that that we don't need to speculate about, but we'll see what happens and whether that success is replicated in future events or whether it was a, you know, strange one-off. And then you add in some of the other, you know, so Simone Biles story was obviously a big one. That was certainly unexpected. Uh, how much of that might be related to pandemic and the strangeness of the last 18 months. It's hard to say. Naomi Osaka going out early, despite the fact that she was a heavy favorite and had been rolling through the tennis tournament and also was out. Novak Djokovic has been like basically unbeatable in 2021. And the gold medal was the last thing for his resume. And he ends up losing and then he loses again. The bronze medal match, like Mm -hmm. Novak Djokovic doesn't lose two matches in a row ever. And he also doesn't like the heat. You know, you, you sort of open this with the question, but I do think that weather, which you really, it's hard to sort of explain how oppressive the heat was unless you were in it. 
I do think that weather had an impact on certain events and certain athletes. Obviously, the weather is the same for everybody, but the reality is some people are going to be better with that than others. And I think it ended up being this sort of weird X factor that probably influenced a lot more events than necessarily we expected going in because it was crazy hot. Any other takeaways for you just in regards to the organization of the games, how this may impact the Beijing Winter Games in six months or even, you know, how it might impact Paris in 2024? Well, I think the coronavirus will still have a significant impact on Beijing 2022. You'd like to think that maybe six months from now, vaccination rates are doing well globally, that we will have turned a serious corner. I would hope that at the same time that that's not the case in Paris. But my sort of big takeaway from the whole thing is despite all the COVID-related restrictions and the lack of fans and the disruption and the delay and all the various problems. I'll add in all the other sort of Olympic things that people roll their eyes at with the way the bids have been awarded and the questionable ethics at times. Mm -hmm. You put all the different things and the problems with the Olympics and ultimately, damned if they don't deliver some compelling sporting moments and make people remember why they get sucked in by the bloody things every four years or every two years, or in this case, every five years. And, you know, they did it again. You have the story, like the women's soccer team, for example, Evan Dunphy, the Canadian race walker who could have fought for a bronze medal in Rio, but didn't want to win it that way on appeal and basically let the guy have it and would tell anyone who listened that he had no regrets and, you know, slept better at night because he knew he made the right decision. He ends up winning a bronze medal in Tokyo with this crazy finish at, in his 50 kilometer event where the guy just ahead of him basically ran out of gas because it was a zillion degrees <laughs> and they just walked for 50 kilometers. It was just a brilliant moment. And he's an interesting character, that guy. And the script, if you had written it that way, you would have said, well, that seems a bit too, like, <laughs> that's <Yeah>. a bit much, <laughs> you know, there's no way that's going to happen that way. And it did. And, and, you know, same thing with the women's soccer. You know, they lose that game famously to the Americans in 2012. And then it turns on a penalty this time around. Again, if it wasn't real life, you wouldn't necessarily believe it. So that's my takeaway from this is that for all the reasons that you can be skeptical of the Olympics and of the decision to hold them in a pandemic and all those perfectly reasonable criticisms, as an event, they do tend to spit out some amazing moments and plenty to remember as the years will go on. Canada, 24 medals. It's highest medal total outside of the boycott games in Los Angeles in 1984. Yep. So arguably our best performance at the games. Mm -hmm. How do we stand heading into Paris in three years? Is that something we can replicate or is it we're too far out to tell at this point? I think whatever you say about the way Canada has now sort of, it's for several Olympics on, very much engineered a medal winning program that really puts value on supporting those athletes who they think have the best shot of making podiums sort of at the expense of those who they don't necessarily think have a shot of making the podium. I mean, this is not news, but, but the funding system really puts the bulk of the funding towards the athletes who they think have the best chance. And if you're, you know, a modern pentathlete who 
has completed the standard, but really has no chance of getting a medal, then you're pretty much on your own and you have to fundraise from friends and family to figure out how to find time to train. So what I'm getting at with all this, Dave, is that we have a pretty well-oiled machine at this point to identify people, to provide them with the resources to train and to compete. And it's pretty effective at not just turning out successful Olympians on the day, but also grooming the next generation and so on and so forth. You know, we were talking about the difference between the women and the men. The pool is a very good example. The women's swim team has now for two Olympics in a row, but very good. The men's swim team hasn't won something, but they do have a very young men's team that they are basically hoping that by Paris, those guys have reached the point in their career where they are consistent medal threats. So I think you can assume especially because they keep adding events to the Olympics and there's more opportunities to win medals and we're sending more athletes that it will probably be every Olympics going forward until such time as there's a big change in the way they handle things. Canada should be expected to do well and to, if not match its medal total, then come in, you know, fairly close to it from game to game to game. I suppose if you have a guy like Andre de Grasse, if he steps away between now and Paris, which I don't think he will, he's relatively young, mm-hmm. you know, you can have a few transitional kind of things. So maybe some of your big medal winners aren't available, but in a general sense, I think you can assume that they'll be shooting for some sort of similar performance in Paris and, and games going forward. We're not going to be approaching the Great Britain or the US or Russia or anything like that, but Canada should be expected to be, you know, in that sort of next tier of countries that is winning in the 20 range in a summer games and a little bit more than that in the winter games. Right on. Well, you know, it was a fun two weeks of sports and looking forward to seeing how Canada fares on the slopes and on the rinks in six months time in Beijing. Scott, thanks for your time. Okay. Anytime, Dave. Thanks a lot. Ten three is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Scott Stinson, more from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thank you.